Um, I also want to say just a quick welcome to the new people. Colin, good to have you with us. Inu, you've been here uh, a long time, so I can't say welcome to the club, but congratulations on your new position. And Jim, uh, it's great to be reunited. I, I worked at the appellate body secretariat when Jim was a, an appellate body judge. Um, our old institution is under attack these days, and so I think Jim and I have our work cut out for us uh, defending it. Uh, turning to the business of the day, though, on behalf of myself and my, my colleague Inu, um, let me offer you a, a second welcome to this conference we've put together. Uh, we very much appreciate the morning crew, those of you who showed up bright and early for this. If any of you are, are still here at 5.15, I'm going to be very impressed by your devotion to trade policy issues. I'm going to start with a, a little personal story about NAFTA. When my friend and colleague Inu over there came to work at Cato about five years ago, she was always talking about NAFTA. She had just finished her, her master's in international relations with a focus on North American studies. And for her, NAFTA, NAFTA was a big deal. NAFTA this, NAFTA that, it was all I heard about. Um, so just for fun, I used, to, I used to tease her. I would say, and this was back in 2012, 2013, I would say, yeah, but isn't NAFTA basically dead at this point? Isn't it going to be subsumed into the TPP? Isn't your chosen field of study obsolete? Uh, <laughs> She would look frustrated and glare at me, which I deserved. Um, but it turns out Inu's having the last laugh on all of this. President Trump withdrew from the TPP. US trade negotiations are all about NAFTA these days. So I'd say congratulations to Inu on your great victory. NAFTA is back with a vengeance. But it may not be a very satisfying victory for her um, if some of the proposals the Trump administration has put out there um, are actually adopted. I hear trade critics often say about this, this trade agreement or that trade agreement, well, it's NAFTA on steroids. But the way things are going at this point, um, I sometimes w worry that we're going to end up with a NAFTA that's frail and depleted and in need of steroids. Uh, NAFTA is certainly relevant again. I'm not sure how great it's going to be. After this renegotiation, how much free trade is going to be left in NAFTA? If you look at some of the Trump administration's proposals, so for example, on automobile rules of origin, well, how many automobile products are actually going to qualify for NAFTA zero tariffs if the, this, these proposals are put into effect? And with uh, procurement liberalization, if, there, if the pullback on procurement liberalization that they proposed um, you know, comes into place and there's a resurgence of Buy America, NAFTA just doesn't look the same. And there are proposals on things like a sunset clause, where uh, NAFTA would expire after five years unless everyone agrees to renew it. And there are proposals on non-binding dispute settlement. These are all reasons for concern, and there are many others as well. But I'm actually, I think, more optimistic that, than many people at this point. I think that some of the Trump administration's proposals are reasonable. Certainly, they're, 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 they aren't things that other people haven't proposed as well. I think that other things they've said may just be negotiating positions. And I can imagine how a deal will come together here. I'm not predicting success. I'm just saying it could happen, and let's not give up on NAFTA just yet. We've made it through round four of these renegotiations. All of the contentious proposals have been put on the table, uh, and the talks didn't collapse. We're still here. Maybe we can make it all the way to the end. That may take longer than proposed, but I think that's OK. We've already moved back the timetable from the end of this year to the first quarter of next year. Uh, even longer than that would be fine, I think. Let's take the time uh, to make sure we get this right. So we're going to be talking about all of these issues today and more. Uh, we have some great speakers. I think we're going to hear a variety of opinions and perspectives on this. I'm looking forward to what everyone has to say. So we're going to start out right now, right after this, with a panel 
reminding us of why we had NAFTA in the first place. Um, what did things look like before NAFTA? What was the pre-NAFTA state of affairs, and how did NAFTA help with that? We're then going to have a discussion panel on criticisms of NAFTA. NAFTA has been under attack since day one. Uh, is there anything to these criticisms? Are there major changes or minor tweaks that, that would be useful here? For, that would be useful here. After lunch, we're going to have a panel on politics, focusing on the United States and Mexico. Canada, as it usually is, is going to be relatively calm in this regard. Uh, there are elections coming up in both the US and Mexico. Will this affect the ability to pass a new NAFTA into domestic law? Also, Ambassador Lighthizer recently suggested that he wants to get back to a situation where you have majority support um, uh, in both parties for trade agreements. He wants a substantial majority of people in both parties. Is that realistic? Can he do this? Next up, we get to the supposedly easy part of all this, modernizing NAFTA. Everyone agrees that a 20-plus-year-old agreement um, that was signed in, you know, before the internet took off is out of date. It should be easy to modernize it, right? Well, these things are never easy, and there are going to be some hurdles there as well. And then right at the end of the day, if anyone still has the energy for it, we're going we're to get into some really nitty-gritty technical discussions. Um, we're going to have two breakout sessions, one on dispute settlement, which has been a hot topic, Chapter 11, Investor State Dispute Settlement, Chapter 19, Binational Panel Reviews of Anti-Dumping Countervailing Duties, and then the core NAFTA Chapter 20 dispute settlement process. We're going to talk about all of those things. Then we're going to have another breakout session on NAFTA-related trade irritants. We're talking about Canadian dairy restrictions uh, uh, and some very controversial anti-dumping countervailing duty cases on air, uh, airplanes and lumber. So thank you all for coming. We hope you enjoy the day. Um, and with that, let me start with the first panel. Turn it over to Jim. Thank you very much, Simon and Dan, and good morning to everyone. I'm Jim Backus. Uh, I must say I am thrilled to uh, be affiliated with Cato Institute, a great beacon for hope for free trade. Uh, I also have to confess um, uh, that I'm one of those to blame for NAFTA. And uh, furthermore, I share the platform here with three others who are equally to blame. Uh, plus, there are a few more of you out there uh, that I think are blameworthy. Um, the Washington Nationals are not in the World Series. NAFTA is to blame. <laughs> if it uh, rains later today when I'll be on my way in a taxi to the airport finally to get home tonight, NAFTA will be to blame, will all be to blame. Why did we do it? Why in the world did we uh, uh, wreak so much destruction, so much havoc in the lives of so many people in three great countries by imposing upon them the North American Free Trade Agreement? We must have had a reason. We must have had a rationale. What could it have been? I'm going to be asking each of these co-conspirators in turn to um, offer their excuses, their explanations, their rationales. But in my case, I, um, 
I thought it would be a very good idea to have um, regional economic integration. I thought we could bring three countries together uh, to trade more with each other and to become more productive and thus be able to trade more successfully with everyone else. I also believe that this would help bind these three countries together peacefully uh, as well as prosperously. I don't recall ever saying that NAFTA would create utopia, and I certainly didn't predict uh, any vast creation of jobs, uh, but I'm one of these people who happens to have read Adam Smith and David Ricardo along the way, as well as the GATT, ever a burden if you're in Congress. And uh, I thought we could make the pie larger for everyone uh, by bringing the three countries together. And that's my excuse. Uh, for that, I do recall that um, shortly after the NAFTA vote, I was in Vero Beach in my congressional district in Florida explaining why I had done what I had done to the Vero Beach Chamber of Commerce. <coughs> while outside there were protesters waving signs and denouncing NAFTA and its threats to everything from Medicare to Social Security to our natural environment. And uh, there were several very nice little old ladies who attacked me with their signs. Uh, the good news for me is that when two years later I was nominated for the appellate body and interviewed in Geneva by a committee of distinguished WTO diplomats. One of them from Singapore uh, said, I did not have to explain to him the fact that I supported international law, international rule of law, and international economic integration because he had a condo in Vero Beach and he had seen the television reports of me being hit on the sign, hit with the signs by those little old ladies. So sometimes political courage has a payoff. All right, what's the payoff from NAFTA? What's our excuse? I've been trying to decide in which order I should go, uh, alphabetical order by country, alphabetical order by name, and I've decided that uh, we need the calm reason of Canada to enlighten us. John Weeks, with whom I've worked many years in many places, um, why in the world did Canada want to enter into a free trade agreement with the United States? And why in the world, given all that's happening today, would you want to continue in one? <laughs> well, thank you very much, Jim, and thank you to Cato for inviting me to this event. It's a real pleasure to be here. I must say, in, in looking at the organization of the day's discussion, I'm a bit uh, <clears throat> concerned because I feel I've been left out of the main uh, part of the act. You know, we're talking about the origins, and obviously the exciting part of today's meeting is talking about what's going on and where it's going to come out. 
So we feel free to wander afar from the terms of reference if you must. Well, we, we've been given some suggestions as to questions we might address. So I've sort of turned these around a little bit. And I want to start by talking a little bit about whether the NAFTA has fulfilled its purpose or whether it's failed its purpose, to use the words that were, were suggested to us. Because I think this gets us a little bit to where we are now. And then I'm going to move back historically and, and answer your question more, more directly. Um, <clears throat> so I think, you know, basically, I, I feel when these kind of questions are asked, it's, it's treating the NAFTA, as questions about the WTO do too, as if it was a sort of institution that was completely autonomous rather than a creature of the members. So the real answer, the real question here has to be about, you know, have the three NAFTA countries lived up to fulfilling the purpose of the agreement, not whether NAFTA itself has done that. And, um, and, and I think in some respects, you know, the, the NAFTA's done what it's, it's supposed to have done. It was a trade agreement. It opened up new opportunities for actors in the private sector. And those have been pursued very vigorously. This is one of the reasons why we now talk about the value chains in North America and how important they are. And when we look at the possibility of taking NAFTA apart, this causes a lot of concern because this is working very well. It makes the North American region very competitive and effective. On the other hand, I, I think a lot of people, you know, there's obviously NAFTA has become a bit of a dirty word. As, uh, and and I, I think here it's really been a, a political failure to a large extent on the part of the parties to the NAFTA who really haven't, continued to explain what, the, what are the benefits of the agreement, and I haven't really been prepared to explain either what are the, uh, the reasons and the causes for the uh, distortions that have been caused by globalization, technological change, and to some extent by trade agreements. And, and this really was the sort of fertile ground that I believe Donald Trump was able to prey on in the election. He reached out to people who were feeling left out and he blamed it on trade agreements. Now, this wasn't the first time that trade agreements had taken the rap for this. You know, it's been quite popular, and as, as, as you all know, in, in presidential elections for the candidates to say they're going to renegotiate NAFTA or they're opposed to NAFTA. And, and the easiest course of, is, is the least resistance to say, I agree with you, NAFTA's seriously flawed and we have to get on with renegotiating it or whatever. But I think this is really failing to recognize where the, where the main problem is and, and the fact that there are a lot of disaffected people out there who are really being, who's, many of whom no longer factor in the, in the employment economy at all. They're neither seeking employment nor employed. And, uh, and, and, and they're feeling more and more alienated. <laughs> and maybe, maybe, maybe perhaps 20% of this, I think most economists would suggest, is caused by the dislocation from trade agreements. But 80% is caused by technological change. And that's, that's a lot, uh, it's a lot easier to blame foreigners than it is to blame technological change that's, that's internal. So, so I, I, I just throw those ideas out there because I, when, I think, when we think about NAFTA, I think it's fulfilled its purpose as a trade agreement in that it's uh, created conditions and contributed to increased prosperity in North America and making the North American region more competitive. But it's failed in the sense that the, 
the members themselves, the governments of the members, haven't really uh, engaged in trying to educate the public about the value of NAFTA and the extent to which trade agreements are or aren't responsible for the kind of dislocation we see in the workplace uh, today. So let me go back now to, <clears throat> to, the, to the, the time when we were starting these negotiations and maybe just a couple of words about context. And I remember going back to that time, Rufus Erickson and I, when, when we were, uh, when at the, in, the, in 1990 and early 91, we're both posted in Geneva as our respective countries' ambassadors to the, to the GATT and the Uruguay round of WTO negotiations. And um, so that, I think, was that's a, a very important part of the, the context in which the NAFTA arose. Um, and and it, it, it meant that there were already negotiations that had reached a fairly advanced stage on intellectual property, on services, so that the, the countries participating in the NAFTA negotiations came to the NAFTA table with an intellectual uh, bank, if you want, of, of, of ideas that had already been developed in Geneva. Um, however, of course, in December of 1990, we had the famous or infamous Brussels ministerial meeting, which was originally supposed to bring the, the Uruguay round to a successful conclusion. And obviously, that did not happen. And in the period immediately after that, there was a lot of concern about whether it was even going to be possible to resuscitate those negotiations or bring them to a successful conclusion. So I, I, I think, you know, there, there, it was a time when people were looking for alternatives. And of course, a few years earlier, um, Canada had completed uh, free trade negotiations with the United States. And, um, and I think Mexico, although I shouldn't really trespass on territory of others, but was the Mexican business community became quite interested in, in how they might be able to develop a, a similar North American relationship. And I know there were some conversations between Canadian business organizations and, 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 and the Mexicans about, about how this might be accomplished. Um, and, and of course, um, looking at a, another element of the context you know, sitting there as a Canadian, a peaceful Canadian watching this, um, it was clear from a number of things that were said in and around the negotiating table uh, that the history between Mexico and the United States had been somewhat more troubled than the one between the United States and Canada, although we did have the War of 1812. You kicked us out. But it didn't result in any change in territory. <laughs> um, so, I, so, you know, there, there were, even without claiming to say that the NAFTA was, a, was about a strategic partnership and sort of the sense of the, of, of the European Union agreements, it, it really was about trying to turn the chapter, turn, turn the page to a new chapter in the history of the relationship between Mexico and the United States. And I think that's very important. And I think also that's very relevant to thinking about where we are today and what could go wrong if, if, if NAFTA were to come unstuck. And frankly, you know, the economic repercussions might be the least uh, serious problem that would result from that. Um, so back to 1991, in, and, and I think this is important too, because the, 
I was still in Geneva at this point, but my, uh, you know, the three heads of government of the three North American countries issued a statement in February 1991 stating that it was a very brief statement, but quite precise and comprehensive. I mean, it, it stated that the, they were going to enter uh, a, a new set of trade negotiations and the objective was to uh, liberalize trade in goods, investment, and services to the maximum extent possible and to provide new disciplines in intellectual property. And, um, and, 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 and the, so it was clear from the outset that the three leaders wanted an ambitious agreement and they wanted an agreement. And of course, we're in a situation today by comparison where, where it's not entirely clear whether President Trump really wants an agreement or not. So this creates a very different atmosphere for negotiating. When we were negotiating in the NAFTA, we, we, of course we ran into problems as we were negotiating, but you always approach these problems in the sense that, you know, let's figure out a way to manage this, to deal with this. And we had this broader perspective in mind that we were trying to do something that was seen as being important for all three countries. And, and quite remarkably, I think this is worth stating because we, we hear jokes about how long trade negotiations take to negotiate. And, and so the, the actual negotiations were begun by the ministers in Toronto, actually, in, in June of 1991. And we completed them 14 months later in August of 92. And then the agreement, the, the original NAFTA was signed by the three heads of government in December of 1992. Of course, by the time President Bush signed it, he was President Clinton, uh, President-elect Clinton had made it clear that he would only put this agreement to Congress if it was complemented with uh, provisions that dealt with labor and environment. And that, of course, led us into the NAFTA side agreements where Rufus Yerksa was my opposite number as, as the American negotiator. And... Um, and I think quite remarkably, we were able to go from an agreement that we would attempt this negotiation in, in, in January of 1993 uh, to actually having an agreement in August of 1993. And this really was, this really was uncharted territory. And I think, again, is a, is, is, is a testament to the, to the will of the three governments to actually try to make, try to make this thing uh, work. And then, of course, it was passed by... Congress in the fall of, of 1993 and came into force on January 1, 1994. I might add because history, of course, looks much more closely at the situation in, uh, in the United States in terms of the change of presidencies. But while I was the NAFTA chief negotiator, I actually worked for three different Canadian prime ministers. Brian Mulroney, when we did the original agreement, Kim Campbell, when we were a conservative successor to Brian Mulroney, when we were doing the side agreement negotiations, and then Jean Chrétien was prime minister when the NAFTA came into force. And his government had to take the final decisions to, to make that happen. Uh, so, um, so that was a, um, a there, there were, I could tell a lot more stories about that, but that, that was not always smooth sailing through that, through, that, through that period. But nonetheless, we came out successfully. Um, why did Canada want a free trade agreement with the United States in the first place? Or why did Canada then decide to go into the NAFTA? I think really the, the, the free trade agreement, in a sense, was a, 
was a, a very clear decision that we wanted to put improve the state of our trade relationship with the United States. There was a lot of concern in the early 1980s about protectionist bills in Congress. How could we create a situation in which we felt less threatened and, are, and more secure? And also, how could we look at certain reforms in the Canadian economy to move away from a, a branch plant sort of syndrome to looking at being competitive on a global scale? And um, so those negotiations were conducted, completed. They were very controversial in Canada. The 1988 election in Canada was really based on whether the free trade agreement was a good or a bad idea. It was the debate in Canada about that was sort of similar to the debate in the United States about the NAFTA in 1993. Um, when we then got to the NAFTA, that, you know, a number of Canadians thought, well, we don't, why, why do we really need this agreement with, with Mexico and so on? And if you looked at the polling, you know, something like 70% of Canadians thought it was a bad idea for Canada to be in a North American free trade agreement. But if you asked uh, Canadians whether they thought if Mexico and the United States were sitting down at the negotiating table, does Canada need to be there? And over 50% said yes. So I think that's, you begin to see. And then of course we'd had four, four years experience with the operation of the Canada-US free, well, three at that point, I guess. It came into force on January 189. Um, and, and, and we, identified a number of ways in which it could be improved. Does this sound familiar? And so we, um, we thought, well, you know, maybe this, this new negotiation would be an opportunity to look at how we improve on the FTA and build a, a stronger, better agreement. And we really took a, a conscious decision in Canada that we'd approach it from that perspective. Um, there were, of course, critics who didn't think we should look at it that way, but we, we really tried to think of how do we use this as an opportunity to build a better agreement. And I think it's, it's pretty clear when you look at it that the NAFTA is a far superior agreement to the Canada-US free trade agreement. It's, it's not without some faults, and those can be looked at now. And, 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 uh, but I, I, I think um, let me, I think probably I'll stop there, except I would like to say one final thing, and that is, you know, when I look at what's going on now at the negotiating table, I see really two, two agreements, uh, two negotiations. One is a negotiation about modernizing NAFTA. And a, a lot of that is borrowing ideas that were started in the TPP and looking at doing some other things as well. Those negotiations among the three countries are going very well. And we've got whole chapters that are nearly ready to be closed or are already closed. On the other hand, there's a renegotiation of NAFTA and that's going very badly because it's really about the, the uh, notion of, of fundamentally changing what the purpose of the agreement is. You know, if we're going to focus on, on having an agreement in which the United States can decide everything and dispute settlement won't work and that uh, has a sunset clause after a number of years, this, this is not an agreement that is going to create good relationships in North America among the countries or for our businesses to operate. And uh, I must say, watching some of this debate recently about <coughs> the uh, trade representative Lighthizer talking about uh, why should uh, the United States government provide political risk insurance for, <laughs> for American businesses. And, uh, and I thought, you know, this is, it's curious because 
you know, that's not really what's going on. What he's go going about doing, if you, I would suggest, is, is, is creating, building political risk into the agreement itself. And why would you do that? That's a, a, a conscious decision to, to create an agreement that's inherently unstable, and I would suggest with the, for the purpose of ensuring that almost all the investment in North America goes into the United States. And, and that's not the kind of agreement to which my country would like to be a party. And I, I think, although I no longer speak for the government, I think saying that, I am speaking for the government. So thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Weeks. Uh, I do wish Cordell Hall were here to explain to <laughs> Ambassador Lighthizer why we need investment protection, but that's another tale. Uh, Rufus, it's been a few years now since you and I walked the halls of the House together whipping votes for NAFTA. It may have been fake news, but uh, I did read uh, uh, on that thing called the Internet that uh, you said the other day that um, the U.S. backing out of NAFTA would be a gift to China. Uh, if indeed you did say that, then I might conclude that you think it would be a bad idea not to continue with NAFTA. Um, why would it be a bad idea to get out of NAFTA? And what did you and I have in mind together when we walked those halls that's still relevant today? Well, thank you very much, Jim. And it is great to be back with you, having walked the halls both in on Capitol Hill and in Geneva uh, together and all your great service uh, to the system during all those years. And of course, John, John Weeks, uh, you know, he told a bit of our history together. He was the, actually the chairman of the GATT Council when I first became ambassador in Geneva. And then we joined each other as, as chief negotiators in the side agreements. He's, you know, he's one of the Zen masters of, of the trade uh, negotiating world. Um, but I want to start because I think maybe one thing I can help with, it's awfully hard in the midst of the debate we're in now about NAFTA to try to take us back to the, to the entire um, kind of context and environment and the world we were living in at the time um, NAFTA was, was conceived and negotiated. So, you know, I came back uh, from Geneva having been the US representative in the GATT in 1993, at the start of the Clinton administration, as John said, President-elect Clinton had said he wasn't going to put NAFTA into place until he'd done these side agreements. So our predecessors had already completed the, 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 the core NAFTA, and John had worked on that with his counterparts from uh, U.S. and Mexico. Actually, my predecessor as deputy USTR was the chief negotiator, Jules Katz, along with Herminio Blanco, who later became Mexico's trade minister. And uh, so I replaced Jules, and then my first task was to work on the, uh, on the side agreements. And I like to tell this one anecdote because I think it tells a lot about what the context was at the time. Uh, we went down for a side agreement negotiation in Mexico, and I think Herminio took us down to this really wonderful old sort of um, big former ranch hacienda sort of place in the countryside surrounded by a stone wall in, in the middle of the most rural agricultural part of Mexico where we're having these side agreement negotiations. And he had purposely taken us there because he wanted to show us the resistance um, in Mexico to joining into a, an agreement with the United States. 
driven largely by agricultural interests, among others, in, in addition to many, uh, many uh, industrialists. But um, he told us, you know, we've made this decision. We've, we've uh, had to make this choice between uh, what he called the choice between modernity and the past. At the time we were negotiating, Mexico had just started to come out of a history of, um, you know, essentially a very, very uh, protectionist uh, system. Uh, one party government, uh, largely state-owned uh, enterprises, uh, high tariff barriers and other restrictions. Uh, they just joined the GATT, I think, in the mid-'80s. Uh, and they were just beginning to move towards, um, towards really opening up their economy, liberalizing uh, in major ways. And this was a huge decision being made by the sort of new generation of Mexicans who said, we really have to do this in a dramatic way. And joining into free trade with the most powerful economy in the world to the north was probably the best way for them to really move in that direction. Uh, but he said, this is a huge, you know, epic struggle in Mexico. Um, and I said, well, uh, what's the strongest argument that you hear against it from elements here? And I'll never forget this kind of pressing of what he said. He said, well, the argument that is the hardest to rebut is you can't trust the Americans. Someday they'll renege on the deal. Um, and I, I definitely remember that, uh, those words come back to me today. But, you know, for all three countries, it was a significant departure from history, what had happened. Uh, I mean, it started with the U.S.-Canada deal in 1988. But remember, for the U.S., before the Canada deal, well, the Israel deal in 85, but who can really count that? The U.S.-Canada deal was the first real a bilateral free trade agreement of any significance, of any commercial significance we had entered into. And in fact, there weren't really any anywhere in the world before this process started. I mean, the European uni Union, yes, the European community and the European free trade area, and a you know, few in Europe where you had this history of, of, of some degree of economic integration and free movement of goods. But, there were no larger free trade deals around the world than that. And so when we started this process, as, as John said, the real focus was on the multilateral system and the, the, the Uruguay round and you know, opening up multilaterally. And there was a great debate as to whether this was a mistake to move towards these FTAs, whether it was complementary with, with multilateralism, et cetera. But it was definitely an environment in which None of us had much experience, and it was a new kind of framework and a new kind of technology that was being used, permitted by the GATT rules, but politically very difficult. The amazing thing, though, is that, and, and this has persisted all the way through the subsequent 20-some years of the U.S. political environment in reacting to NAFTA. As John said, you know, much of what is occurred in, in the reaction to, to, to trade and the impact on jobs has been the phenomenon of technology, of growing um, competitiveness. As you, as you liberalize and open the, the world economy, you also get industries that are much more competitive, able to do more with fewer workers. You know, there's this 
70-year trend in the U.S. of um, manufacturing jobs as a percent of the overall workforce declining, while manufacturing output has been increasing. Uh, a little like the phenomenon in agriculture a century earlier. You know, so we went from 30 plus percent of the workforce being engaged in direct manufacturing in 1950 to under 9% today. But that's a trend that's happened everywhere in the industrialized world. Um, and it's a result of technology productivity and the changing nature of our economies. Uh, and to the extent that trade really has an, had an impact, you know, much, much, much bigger impact, obviously, has been the absorption of China into the trading system and the impact of, of China's growth. Um, you know, to the extent there have been major job dislocation in the U.S., it's, it's a result much more of trade with Asia than with Mexico. I, I mean, I like to point out the entire Mexican economy is still you know, depending on how you measure it, is, you know, still less than 8% of the size of the U.S. economy. Uh, our trade deficit with Mexico, um, you know, if you take a broader measure of goods and services, it's what, less than, less than $50 billion. That's something less than two-tenths of 1% of our economy. I mean, it's about the size of the GDP of Birmingham, Alabama. That's the size of our deficit. With Mexico and most economists, when they look at what actually happened in 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 terms of the you know the macro impact of this whole agreement, by the way, I haven't spoken as much about Canada. We had more integration across the border even before the U.S.-Canada free trade agreement. We had the auto pact. We had quite a bit of cross a lot of cross border investment before before the NAFTA and even before the U.S.-Canada deal. But you know, Mexico, Canada at the time we were negotiating was. 10% the size of the U.S. economy in both population and GDP. So, you know, the purpose, and this is what I was asked to talk about, is what was the purpose of this. I think the vision that people had in putting this together was very much that um, we were certainly the, the, the big economy. We were integrating uh, trade with two smaller economies to become a much more uh, effective and competitive economy globally. And in fact, there was a lot of talk about, is the US moving towards a trading block? Uh, that very much was the thinking, was that this integration was gonna help us to compete with uh, Japan and an emerging China and a, a growing Asia. People were talking about how fast Asia's economy was growing and how fast Asian trade was growing, and that the US needed greater economies of scale what we like to talk about now is uh, integrated supply chains or a global, uh, uh, a North American production platform. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind, if you look at sectors like automobiles, that we're much, much more competitive today globally because of NAFTA. And the auto industry is talking about this now in being very vocal about their opposition to these changes that have been proposed by their own government. Um, you know, we're exporting two million automobiles a year from the United States today. That's something like five times the level of what we were doing uh, at the time NAFTA, NAFTA went into force. So it's been tremendously successful in the sense of that kind of greater uh, economies of scale for North American production versus our major uh, competitors in the world. And that's why I talk about, you know, the 
the disassembling of this agreement or the disintegration of NAFTA as being a huge gift uh, to the Chinese. Uh, and you know, largely a gift to our other competitors. So that's one key point about what the impact of, of this current um, set of proposals from the administra administration are. My main point here is if you take you back to the original context in, this in which this was done, first of all, the, the actual effect of the agreement has, for most economists, been um, significant positive uh, economic uh, results for Mexico, um, smaller positive economic results for the United States. I don't know why that would surprise anybody when you look at the size of the two economies. But in terms of the payoff, not just in, in this North American production platform, but in greater stability and cooperation uh, between the countries of North America. I remember at the time we were debating this in the Congress, um, a very great, great man, but unfortunately an opponent of NAFTA, Senator Moynihan, the chairman of the Finance Committee, his main argument against it was you can't have a free trade agreement with a country that's not free. And his view of Mexico was a one-party state with state ownership, as I said, and not really the kind of trading partner the United States should, um, should, become, should enter into a common market with. The counter argument we were making was, if you want to see Mexico move in that direction, this is absolutely imperative. Look at Mexico today, multi-party democracy, um, you know, a member of the OECD now because it's moved so far up the development ladder, um, largely privatizing its, its, uh, its industries. I mean, it's a little, few vestiges of state ownership in the energy sector. Trade obviously has been a huge driver of that kind of move towards the right kinds of market uh, system. And uh, by the way, net out migration from the United States to Mexico, whereas at the time we negotiated this, we had significant problems of in-migration from, from Mexico to the United States. Um, a much more stable, much more reliable, much more friendly partner. And I, you know, obviously with Canada, the relationship has remained strong all the way through. Maybe there wouldn't be as much damage in the US-Canada relationship. We do have that old agreement to fall back on if President Trump were to decide to pull out of NAFTA. But with Mexico, I have no doubt what the impact would be. This would be reversing uh, a very, very, very successful uh, enterprise for both countries in creating a better North American production platform, a much more stable um, uh, and reliable relationship uh, and you know, much, much better neighbors um, and, and important allies of us in trying to move on the real problems we face in the future, like how to move China in the right direction uh, rather than towards its own brand of economic nationalism, uh, which is a huge threat to, uh, to a lot of our uh, sort of technological and innovative leadership. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Rufus, and amen. Uh, before I turn to our last panelist, I, I want to say uh, a word about him. Uh, first of all, uh, 
uh, I count it as a, as a great personal honor that uh, some years ago he asked me to swear him in when he became a member of the WTO appellate body. Uh, Ricardo has been my friend for many years, and I want to say publicly how proud I am of the way in which he has served on the appellate body in all the years since. Uh, he has made a great contribution uh, to upholding the international rule of law and trade and thus to proving that there can be such a thing as the international rule of law. Um, Ricardo, turning to our subject at hand, my friend, uh, if the United States uh, does turn out to be untrustworthy and reneges on uh, this deal, uh, will Mexico decide uh, that uh, Mexico should build a wall between the United States and Mexico <laughs> and, and, and turn to many other countries to trade uh, uh, with Mexico instead of those faithless Americans? Uh, what do you think? <laughs> okay, I will hold up that answer. Um, first of all, thank you for the invitation to the Cato Institute, uh, Simon. Uh, let, let me start with some clarification and disclaimer, because I was not part of the Mexican negotiating NAFTA team. So uh, during 1993 and 1991, well, 1991, I was finishing law school. In 1993, I was doing my LLM in the city. I remember being, in 1993, congratulated uh, when the NAFTA was passed by all my fellow... Uh, You're guilty by association, Ricardo. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I, I was one of those who came to the United States and believed that NAFTA will open a lot of opportunities. So uh, I think you can call me a NAFTA dreamer <laughs> to some extent. So uh, I started working at the Mexican ministry in February of 1995. So I was charged to defending the NAFTA, what these guys negotiated. Uh, I was part of the second generation of, of Mexican negotiators. Uh, but by that time, the legends of Jerza and Weeks already were in the corridors of the ministry. We already knew about them. Uh, so uh, having said that, I hope you appreciate that I was not, I did not leave that moment. I just uh, tried to defend what I think was very well negotiated by, by the three countries. Um, I will give you a little bit of context on, on the Mexican side, as well as what were the political, intellectual, and economic consequences of negotiating the NAFTA. Uh, first of all, and I think as Rufus mentioned that, we were really a freshman in trade negotiations when we started the NAFTA. And you're dealing with 1986, where we started, uh, we signed uh, we, the protocol of accession to the GATT. Uh, remember that um, it was the second attempt to enter into GATT. Mexico did a first attempt where there was a, a very, very controversial political decision within the Mexican government. After everything was done, the Senate was already approving, uh, was set to approve the GATT uh, incorporation, but uh, there was a political decision by the Mexican president not to, uh, not to exceed uh, the GATT. So we really... Uh, there was, there was really uh, uh, a political scenario. Uh, we, we were new on this. And uh, uh, 
I think you can fairly say that NAFTA represented the, the dreams of millions of Mexicans for a better life. Uh, I think NAFTA was the pillar, if not the cornerstone, cornerstone of Mexicans' grand plan of economic growth. The end, NAFTA was the cornerstone of that. And it truly represented a challenge from a political, from an economical, and from, from an economic, and from an intellectual standpoint. Economically, and as, as Rufus, also, Rufus also mentioned, we were a close economy. We were really an import substitution economy. Uh, we were a compensated trade economy. If that sounds familiar, you know where that comes. Uh, and at the end, it really, it was a whole change in the paradigm of what is economic, what what one what Mexico wanted from a from an economic standpoint, um, politically, I think the NAFTA is one of the best examples of how you can do political governance through trade rules. And at the end, if you come to see how Mexican trade scenario was shaped you can see that all Mexican trade laws date back to 1993, 1992, 1994. So those rules, and you're talking about competition rule, law, you're talking, about, you're talking about, of course, trade law, you're talking about telecommunications law, all those laws were created. And of course, I don't mention any very important one, procurement, government procurement laws. So all of those laws, date back to 1993. So if there's, I think, a good example of how you can help political governance through trade rules, I think it's an after. And I will totally agree with what Rufus says. At the end, it was more than a trade agreement. It was really a, a, a plan of how we will move, how Mexico will move forward for the next 20 or 30 years. Of course, it was also an intellectual challenge. I mean, we were new, we were uh, new negotiators. I think we were very fortunate to have people like Jaime Serra, Herminio, and Jaime Sabludowski helping that team because that they created a whole, a, whole, a whole generation of negotiators in the Mexican government and outside the Mexican government. Now you're dealing, I think we are in the third or fourth or fifth generations that are dealing with the TPP negotiations but all of them come from the same tree. So I, I think it, it was, it was uh, from the Mexican side, it was a, a, an important experience, and it really shaped the way the Mexican economy will look for the, for the, for the, ne for the coming years. <coughs> I also think that NAFTA was oversold and misinterpreted. Uh, at the end, uh, people forget that, and I think I will agree with John, that it's just a contract at the end. Uh, important, but only a contract. And, and throughout these 23 years, uh, the NAFTA in Mexico became the icon of anything that happened, or anything wrong that was done by the government. Uh, of course, all that changed recently, one year ago, where now NAFTA is the savior of everything that happens in Mexico. But at the end, this shift, this shift from one point of view to another, uh, it's, it's important. 
and and I say that it was misunderstood because I I remember that during my first years in in, in the government I was uh, I was many times invited to go and, and and talk to the agricultural people in Mexico, no? and they will came out with these arguments about well we need more domestic support we need more money for. Uh, for this, and NAFTA is to blame because we don't get more domestic support on these things. And my answer to those always was, where, where in the NAFTA do you think that we were obliged not to give you domestic support? Actually, the NAFTA does not regulate domestic supports. We go to the subsidies agreement of the, of the WTO. So at the end, I think that that, that also influenced a lot. Um, I will try to uh, mention three things that are important in the context of the NAFTA, which I think happen, which I think takes us to where we are now, and, and some problems. First of all, I think the NAFTA operated under automatic pilot for a lot of time. So I think institutionally, uh, and I remember because I was there, there were uh, the committees, all the NAFTA committees, and all the chapters will meet regularly for the first 10 years, for the first five years, for the first seven years. And after that, I, 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 I think they were not, they were institutionally, the NAFTA was broken. And, and that, that had an impact. Because once you don't have an institutional development, then the problem becomes, how do you put all, all trade liberalizing initiatives that had an impact on the NAFTA were done on the NAFTA sidelines. And I give you two examples, one in the interest of Mexico and one in the interest of the US. Uh, the first one is when we, started talk, when we started talking about temporary entry of business people. This initiative about the global entry program was done on the NAFTA sidelines, was never done in the context of the temporary entry chapter. And more dramatically, I think, the energy reform in Mexico. Mexico did a very substantial energy reform some years ago. And that was not in the, done in the NAFTA context. And I think it was for the US or Canada to bang at the table and say, we, sh we should talk about it. It's, it's, it's a NAFTA thing. So I think that was one of the the, of, of, the, of the fallbacks of, of losing this institutional uh, part of the NAFTA. And I will, of course, not even mention the dispute part, which I think really, really go to the heart of, of that. Uh, and, and moreover, there were some pending issues. And at the end, we forget that the NAFTA had, had some pending issues and they are now coming back to us. Uh, the trucking issue was never solved. The professional services, uh, mutual recognition agreements is really talking about works on, on other sides. I think we never developed that. And government procurement. We had that provision. We said that in some years we will sit down and negotiate some uh, government procurement, uh, so federal, province, or state level. We never did that. And now, now we're paying for that, I think. So uh, at the end, I think in terms of Mexico, the NAFTA changed the way Mexico looked like. 
politically, economically. I think uh, I think is there's a Mexico after and before NAFTA. Uh, but I think one of uh, and, and that goes to the whole now uh, theme of anti-liberalization. I think trade agreements are blamed for a lot of things that they should not be blamed for. And, and I think it's more internal policies, inequality, rule of law, that are more important in some countries than, than trade agreements. So I, I will leave it like that. Thank you, Ricardo, for those remarks. I, I think uh, what you said about the uh, three countries being absent on the issue of institutional development was especially uh, profound. Um, you know, politically, it's just been impossible in the United States even to, to touch NAFTA over the past decade and more. Um, so we've missed opportunities in which it could have been improved along the way. And here we are. Uh, I will ask my colleagues, we have time for questions? Sure. We have time for questions. Just let me know when, when we've run out of time. Um, if you will, raise your hand. I think there's a microphone somewhere out there. And uh, tell us your affiliation. Uh, here, here we are on, in the first row here. Thank you, and uh, One question, actually, both John and Rufus. Oh, sorry. Uh, Jean-François Boitin with uh, CP Economic Think Tank in Paris. Uh, both John and Rufus alluded to that, the fact that NAFTA was also used by our American colleagues after the failure of the Brussels meeting as a sort of bogeyman to convince Europeans that they should go forward in the framework of the Uruguay round. So my question is, if people want to reverse the course of history and actually destroy NAFTA, is WTO next? Well, I don't think Ricardo could talk to that. Uh, but uh, which one of you would like to go first? Rufus? Rufus was Deputy De Director General of the WTO. Well, He's a multiple center. <laughs> you do wonder where things will stop. I mean, I think the interesting thing right now is, you know, Ricardo just mentioned this sort of move towards, uh, I don't know if you used economic disintegration or... Uh, as you said, going backwards, um, it's not really happening everywhere. You know, let's remember the Europeans and the Canadians just finished a free trade agreement together that they put into place. Uh, in, Europeans are intensifying their free trade agreement with Mexico. Japan has already has an FTA with Mexico, I think. Uh, Canada doesn't have one with Japan yet, but, you know, depending on what happens with the TPP-11... Uh, it may. I mean, we, we actually could be facing a situation a year from today, if President Trump decides to pull out, where all our biggest competitors would have free trade with Canada and Mexico, and the United States wouldn't, which means, you know, we'd be at a competitive disadvantage in that $600 billion export market. Um, least favored nation. Yeah, least favored nation. And you know, is WTO next? I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's absurd to think that anybody thinks you, you, you could pull out of, of, of the WTO and, and prosper. But my main point is, 
and, and Jean-Francois, you know because you follow this debate in Europe, actually the, the free trade issue became much easier in Europe once you were no longer negotiating a TTIP with Donald Trump. So you've been able to get the Canada deal through without much of a whimper and the Japan deal. Um, and so I think for Americans, this is something we have to be prepared to, to face. You know, this is more a question of the U.S. withdrawing from the trend in the world than it is the U.S. following a trend in the world or joining a trend in the world. Um, and the consequences are pretty big. So there's something like 450 regional trade agreements now in effect around the world notified to the, to the WTO. Uh, people are accelerating that process. I think there's a real push in, in the TPP-11 to finish, led by Japan now. So that's going to be very interesting. I know they still have some real problems uh, in getting that resolved. But, uh, you know, this is the strategic dilemma that the, the Trump administration is now going to have to come to grips with, um, rather than talking about... The, the populist appeal of, of beating up on, on, on Mexico. John? Well, thank you. And Jean-Francois, thank you for that question. And I must say, I, I saw you quoted in Inside U.S. Trade, I think last week, on this issue. And, and while I agree, I agree essentially with what Rufus has just said, but let me make two, two further observations. One is there's something quite disturbing really about watching the United States really picking a fight with its two best partners, its two biggest markets uh, over the NAFTA rather than concentrating on trying to improve trade relations with other parts of the world where there seem to be greater problems. And, and it not only does it seem strange from the point of view of not really addressing the things that seem to be of concern to this administration, uh, but it's 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 disturbing it runs the risk of destroying the competitiveness of North America in this increasingly uh, vigorous global trading environment. And the last thing I'd like to say, very much to your point and your question, is uh, I found myself thinking so about uh, thinking about automobiles because that's quite topical in terms of what's going on. So, you know, what is the what is the logic for trying to renegotiate, you know, NAFTA to sort of try to reduce the trade deficit in automobiles. So if you withdraw from, if the United States were to withdraw from NAFTA, um, or, or, or even if, if these new rules of origin could be implemented at the levels proposed by the United States of 85% for North American content, 50% for US content, and all of this in a situation where the duty on the import of passenger cars into the United States is 2.5%. So where's, you know, the, the, the economic cost to the industry of trying to comply with these rules of origin would be a lot more than 2.5%. Uh, and similarly, if, if, uh, if the president were to withdraw from NAFTA, and he prizes himself, I think, as a shrewd negotiator. How do you then explain that you've gone from a situation with zero duties and requirements that certain North American content rules be respected to a situation in which there are no content rules, that anybody can ship a car into the United States from anywhere in the world over a duty of 2.5%, and at the same time, in Mexico, which had been 
duty-free to U.S. exports. The applied rate under the WTO is 16%, and the bound rate, I think, is 50%. In Canada, it's 6.1%, depending what happened to the Canada-U.S. FTA. So that doesn't look like a very good deal for the United States. How do you explain that this is an improvement on the situation that existed under NAFTA? And there is a certain logical, you know, connection there that, well, maybe then you really have to go on and, and rectify this second problem, which is the WTO. So, so I, I, think, I think it's, I, I can see this arising in that sort of mindset. Well, well, I agree with Rufus that, you know, who'd be crazy enough to want to withdraw from the WTO, given the enormous benefits it has for the United States? Thank you, John. I'm, I'll refrain from comment because I want to give people a chance to answer questions. You, sir, uh, uh, right? I'm pointing at you. Yeah, waving your hand. Uh, if you'd identify yourself and then uh, ask your question, please. Yes, I'm Ed Gerwin uh, with the Progressive Policy Institute. Uh, we hear a lot from President Trump, Secretary Ross, and others about the supposed superiority of negotiating trade agreements on a bilateral basis. Uh, as um, negotiators who were involved in probably, you know, one of the leading multilateral regional trade agreements, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that and, um, you know, what problems you would see if the United States in particular moved uh, to a trade negotiating posture in which we were doing everything on a bilateral basis. Thank you. Thank you. Rufus, why don't you take that one? Or Ricardo, do you, do you want to try that one? Well, it's... I, I don't see any difference because at the end, and, and if you look at the NAFTA, and if you, if you go of the tariffs and rules of origin, at the end, we are not a customs union. We never reach that stage. So if you take a look at bilaterally, I don't see any difference of, uh, for example, of proposals like regional content of that will affect in the same way as going into that. So even if you go bilateral, the problems remain. And even you will have a sunset clause, even you will have, uh, I don't see any difference in maybe, maybe it's an issue of power play. May, and, and if you will take a look from that standpoint, well, maybe that's the strategy they want, they, they would like to use. But, but that is in tandem with what uh, you're saying about sunset clauses uh, in five years, and those goes to power plays. And if you want to do that, now I remind, I think, and I think Rufus mentioned it, we are not in the 1970s. We are not in the 80s. It's a different world. It's a different scenario. There are different players. And I, no, I am not sure that the power play will work. Yeah, I, Rufus. I don't Can I, I, I agree entirely with what Ricardo is saying. And, you know, to me, this is more the thinking of people who have been engaged in the world of maybe real estate transactions and buying and selling companies rather than setting up a global trading system. So I can just tell you from the standpoint of the companies that, that I work for, that's the worst possible outcome because 
What you really want is you want the rules to become more uniform around the world so that you can maximize your, your uh, production with global markets rather than having to meet a different rule, a different test, a different requirement everywhere you sell, uh, which just adds to your cost and increases complexity. So that's the first thing. It's the worst possible arrangement from a standpoint of people actually engaged in the, in the commerce across borders. The second thing is you shouldn't assume that in a world of pure bilateralism, the U.S. holds all the cards it used to. Uh, at the beginning of the GATT system, we were 50% of world trade, and that probably would have been a pretty good deal at that time. Uh, we're 13% today, or actually moving down closer to 12%. Um, and so, you know, you're dealing with a world in which there's lots and lots of, you know, one of the great successes of, of the system is that there's lots of good, strong economies in the world with uh, capacity to trade. And uh, so, you know, the thought that we're not going to try to have the propagation of it's much easier to do rules on the broadest possible basis. In fact, I even worried a bit, you know, is how much conflict is there between TPP rules? If TPP had come into force, I think it's a good agreement. But if it had come into force, conflict with, with WTO rules, which ultimately the WTO system would have had to adjust to by, by I think, incorporating a lot of those changes. Could I just add quickly? Yes, please do. We want to allow one more question, John. I, I, I find that, uh, you know, I've done a fair amount of work after I left the Canadian government with American business. And I remember one, I, and I've listened to a number of senior executives of, of multinational companies in the United States say they'd much prefer operating in an environment with a multilateral set of trade rules than a bilateral set. Because it just makes doing business simpler across a much broader area, which is what they're interested in. Secondly, on this business of, you know, do you get a better result negotiating bilaterally? I think it's I think the United States has been a bit surprised in the, in the NAFTA renegotiation to find out, for instance, that Canada is saying, well, look, we're not prepared to agree to the TPP improvements in intellectual property in the NAFTA negotiations. You know, wh where's the reciprocity in that? What are we getting from you? We were prepared to look at doing this in the context of TPP because out of this deal, we were getting a whole lot of new things, including access to the Japanese market. Uh, so, you know, powerful as it is, you know, the United States uh, cannot always get its way in a bilateral trade negotiation. And, and I think that's an, an interesting example of that. Thank you, John. Before taking a last question from that young lady in the, in the middle there, I just wanted to make one basic observation about the difference between bilateral and multilateral negotiations, not uh, for the benefit of businesses, which of course is true, uh, and that benefits everyone, but also uh, because if you lower barriers to trade multilaterally, then the concessions in terms of liberalization are, are made uh, by everyone everywhere. This uh, greatly uh, enhances the result, it multiplies uh, and maximizes the potential gains from trade uh, uh, by virtue of the agreement, uh, and uh, it multiplies the opportunities that people have to share in those gains from trade. 
Yes, ma'am. If you'll tell us who you are, this will be the last question uh, I've been told. Tell us who you are uh, and then ask your question, please. I'm Barbara Bowie Whitman. I do some independent consulting now, but I was trade officer in Mexico City, 87, 88, at the time that the Canadian bilateral was signed and the framework for what eventually became NAFTA was signed. Now, what Lighthizer said in the last round was, you've got to give me something to take home to the boss. I'm sorry that we came to the point in the, in the political dynamic that we have a president who believes something I do not believe to be true about trade. But having staked out his position, possibly as a good wedge issue to get him some votes, and possibly because he truly believes it, I think he needs something to save face so to keep the agreement going. If we listen to what Lighthizer said, what would each of you think would be some concession to Donald Trump that would keep this thing together? That you could, that all parties could accept? <laughs> well, the emperor may have no clothes, but nevertheless, he's still the emperor. Uh, uh, <laughs> So, so what concessions might Mexico make, Ricardo? We'll start with you. <laughs> well, um, of course, uh, the four of us, none of us are, are part of the negotiation team, and, and so it's, it's difficult to, to speculate. Uh, at the end, uh, you don't know how this will unfold. I understand that uh, Mexico and Canada rejected all the U.S. proposals, basically, but they, but they, they promise that they will look at them. I think, and that that's what they're doing. I understand that uh, there will be a delay on the next round, basically because the three of uh, the three parties will sit down with their teams and, and analyze the proposals. Uh, I, I don't know because the, the the whole premise on where some of these proposals stand goes really against the, the purpose of the, of the agreement. So at the end, you cannot say that you can bargain something, but at the end, it's a negotiation. Don't forget. And once you are in a negotiating mode, you get something and you and you give something. So I don't. I I, I really don't see how. Uh, in, in isolation, you can say, okay, give this, because that will be some, uh, only a function of the, of the balance of the negotiation. I, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a uh, and I will give an example. What is the value of charter, chapter 19? Rufus, and, you, and I, you know, it is a very good question. I, I can't put myself in the position. I mean, I'm, I'm no longer in the government, so I don't have responsibility yeah. for devising their positions. I think, as, as I think Simon said when he started this thing, that there were some good proposals, some good ideas already on the table. There's some things there that could be useful and helpful. By the way, some of them taken from TPP, or quite a bit of them, but you know, certainly the, the stuff on the digital economy. Um, I think there's two things. One is he. If, if Bob Lighthizer would now use this breathing space to sit down with a lot of the American industries and agriculture groups that are complaining about the fact that our negotiating position doesn't reflect their real interest and talk to them about what does and what kinds of things we can put on the table that would be supportable and productive 
Um, I think even with the autos industry, he probably could could uh, could find some ways to to move the needle a little bit uh, to improve the North American auto market. I mean, we have some industries that look at some of the offensive things we want. I make my Canadian and Mexican colleagues a bit uncomfortable, but you know, raising the de minimis uh, requirement for uh, for e-commerce uh, uh, and and cross-border small small package deliveries where, you know, in the U.S. it's been raised $800. I think it's $20 Canadian in Canada and $100 in Mexico. Um, this would be a huge spur to, um, to small and medium-sized businesses engaged in international trade, um, and that would be a good thing. I think, uh, you know, there's obviously things being talked about in the IP area like, like uh, you know, the 12 years on biologics, which I think Canada has had trouble with in the past. But those are the kinds of things that would make U.S. industry more excited about the agreement. I also think there's one other thing that could really be useful for, and that is if you take areas like rules on state-owned enterprises, which I think they came from the TPP, but they could put into the NAFTA, I think President Trump should try to get commitments from Mexico and Canada to, to help the U.S. in pushing these issues in uh, both in the WTO uh, and in negotiations in Asia with the Chinese and others um, to, to create a common negotiating position for, to push for those things. In other words, use the NAFTA negotiations to create a North American consensus about how to push forward with with uh, the real trade problems we have. Thank you, Rufus. Uh, an idea or two, John? Well, one of, the, one of the problems, I think, in the current situation is it's not clear to Canadian negotiators, I think, what, what the game plan is here on the U.S. side. Have these proposals that are pretty obnoxious been put out on the table really to create conditions for withdrawing from the agreement? Or are they sort of positions that are out there that to which the United States is go going to be prepared to show considerable flexibility in terms of how they might be readjusted, negotiated down. Some of them might be withdrawn. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a fundamental problem. And the other problem is, you know, how do you engage in a negotiation? Who should we be negotiating with on this? You know, if, is, uh, is, is, is Lighthizer prepared to give the authority to strike a deal to his chief negotiator? Is the president prepared to give the authority to, to, uh, to Lighthizer? Or are we faced with a situation where we might agree at the negotiating table on something and then be told, oh, that's not nearly good enough, you're gonna to have to improve it here, here, and there. And so I think you know, there can be some creativity, there can be some flexibility, uh, but part of the problem is, is defining the parameters of the, of the game. Thank you all uh, very much. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed uh, being with my colleagues once more. And uh, again, thanks to Cato for giving me this opportunity. Uh, we'll all be with you the rest of the day, learning a lot more about NAFTA.